The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. This talk is on biblical sexuality versus plastic sexuality. Let's read this account from Genesis. This is Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 first text. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the first text. The second is Genesis 2, verses 18 to 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, I come to you this morning uh, talking to you about a matter which is of, uh, I think, of grave importance, not just uh, on a level of the legal plane, although obviously it is, I am going to talk about that, uh, but on a personal level. And on it has the deepest of theological significance as well. And I'm not going to be able to cover every aspect of it because it is such a, 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 deep, as, a deep subject and a, a wide subject. But those books are quite helpful. You may want to consider those. But let me begin by saying this. In biblical theology, the cornerstone, the touchstone for any critical examination of what a human being is, is this concept of the imago dei. And we saw that in Genesis 1.27, in the image of God created he man. Uh, this imago is an endowment that the human person bears as a distinctive of creaturely being. But it cannot be uh, inferred or derived from creaturely being. Note that the, uh, there were other animals that were created on the sixth day. They were also creatures yet they didn't bear the imago. There can be no such thing as creaturely humanity apart from the image of God. But the human person does not possess intrinsic aspects of this imago by virtue of being a creature. Again, note the other animals. The image of God is extrinsic, not intrinsic, to creaturely humanity. It has its source, and I said this a few days ago, Uh, It has its source 
uh, in the power that which creates and constitutes the human, which is the divine word. It's God's address. That makes that's the distinction there. We can't explicate the imago dei, the what God's image is, the human person. Therefore, by analyzing creatureliness itself. So if you look to sociology, the human sciences, when they they look at human beings, you can't understand a human being just by looking at the creaturely characteristics of a human being. So beginning at that point is going to get you nowhere. You will see that man by that standard is just like the other animals. And this is part of the problem with all contemporary discussions of these things is that they begin with the human being as another animal and specifically as an organism rather than a person. Now, let me go on then from this. But it doesn't take account the revelation of God as a word which determines and explains and explicates what the Imago Dei is. Now, the content of the image of God is experienced as differentiation within unity. Note that he creates man in his image, male and female. There is a unity. They're both called man. They two together are called man, yet there is a differentiation within that unity. Or we could say that human being is a polarity of being experienced as complementarity. It's not dif- just differentiation, they're complementary. Because the particularity of being human is always a creaturely sort, so despite what I said about creaturely, we're still creaturely, because it's always of a creaturely sort, this Polarity and complementarity is expressed in terms of sexuality. Male and female, male or female. And thus the polarity is intrinsically one of sexual differentiation. For there is no other form in which it is manifest except through creaturely humanity. That's how it's manifest, but that's not its nature. And it's either male or female. So, the basic take-home message here on this is that the image of God is not intrinsic to creaturely humanity, because we're creatures just like the other animals, but it is contingently related to it. Human sexuality, however, is intrinsic to the Imago Dei because it is expressed as this polarity of the human at the creaturely level. Now, I, that, may be, that may have escaped you. We can pick it up in the Q&A if that's the case. But I think you got my point. There are, there are male and female. Uh, there, are, there are male and female animals. And, yet the, and so there, there's a differentiation between the two, the unity between the two, and yet what constitutes the human isn't those two, and yet it is expressed for those two, it's understood, and we see it through those two, it's manifested through those. So it's not that it's insignificant, but it can't be reduced to that. And we can see this, actually, Uh, in one sense, in the differentiation between creator and creature. That is not a barrier to relationship, note. Uh, And and in fact, we we insist on the holiness of God, the the total otherness of God. Uh, But that isn't a barrier to our relationship with God. On the contrary, it constitutes the very basis for the relation of these persons, the the divine person and the human person. The, it's the otherness that allows this. It is the very source of true intimacy. It's intensified by otherness. 
And this is true not just for the human relationship with God, it's also for the, true for the human relationship with other human beings. So the, uh, what we've called as the uh, androgyny, the tendency to unisex as a way of breaching the, uh, or uh, get, gaining intimacy, breaching the divide between people has the perverse consequence of preventing the very thing that it desires, namely the intimacy between two persons. Because the image of God is a correspondence between God and human persons, even though it is a correspondence of the unlike, there is actually a true encounter and meeting of being in it. And if this differentiation is blurred, as is in the case in, in androgyny, as is the case in a unisex, a move towards a neutral form, an organic form, if that happens, uh, the, so, the abs- so that the, an absolute distinction between God as uh, creator and human as creature no longer exists, so if we make God into being just another being like us, then we don't really perceive God for who he is. In the same way, when we do this with our fellow human beings, we don't actually encounter them as human persons either. And this is intensely problematic. So the move towards organic autonomy that I've talked about and others have talked about here, uh, it actually prevents the very thing that it says that it is facilitating. And because we bear the image of God... It also has a theological consequence. It, it blurs the very personhood of God. So this is a, it has deep theological consequences, even though it's happening at the anthropological level. Now note that, um, as I say, other animals... Uh, are also male and female. And personhood is not a result of being male or female. Rather, as I said, creaturely maleness and femaleness is a manifestation of the fundamental polarity of personhood, which is manifest in that difference. It's a sign, if you will, of personhood. To go back to the Augustine signs, it's referring to something. It's not just a thing in itself, it's a, it's a sign of something. It's a sign of divine personhood. And so those in the theological tradition who have talked about this Genesis 1, 26 and 27 passage have observed that it says, let us make, make man in our own image. So the fundamental polarity of male and female, the personhood, the distinctiveness there is also an expression of the distinctiveness of the personhood in the Trinity. So it's a sign of that personhood. Furthermore, the marriage between the two is genuinely of two persons. Now the two persons become one flesh. The one flesh is also a sign. We could go on to the passage in Ephesians 5 where it talks about the marriage of a man and a woman being a sign of the unity between Christ and his church as well between persons and the divine person. So these are, uh, I'm just sketching over a very large and uh, complex subject, but I just wanted to note those things at the very outset here.
and to note how the social sciences and the humanities these days, and the sciences for that matter, wholly ignore this. And as a consequence, they collapse the human into the animal. And as a consequence, they do not help the humans or the animals. Because once again, as we've noted, the, uh, the charge for man from the outset is to exercise dominion over the other animals, to be responsible for them. That's his unique. So to try and have a more unified uh, notion of life is not only to defy God's commandment, it's to be, and to be irresponsible, it is to allow oneself to fail to understand God, to fail to understand one's fellow creatures, and to destroy the very natural world which we're supposedly trying to embrace. Because we're trying to do it on our own terms. So that's just the sketching out of the whole contours. Much more could be said, but I want to talk to you about plastic sexuality. I know people have asked me about this, and I, I sometimes because I'm an English professor, uh, I use words in ways that are not uh, as common these days. I use them in a root sense, and I sometimes forget, and I don't like putting footnotes to the words that I use. I just mean plastic in the sense that it's malleable. I don't mean that it's actually made of plastic. Like a, you know, credit card. I mean, it's malleable. Sexuality. It conforms to whatever we want it to be. That's what I mean by it. Uh, by the way, we've got our. This is a plug. We've already put these have been on. Um, this this jubilee speaks of these issues, and it doesn't just speak of plastic sexuality. It speaks of many uh, helpful things besides this, including. Um, how the, the, the pagan practice of sexuality and the theory of it operated, um, what a biblical perspective on marriage and sex is, and even how Augustine understood marriage and, and some of the, the consequences of that, in addition to the plastic sexuality, I think you find it really helpful. It's, a, it's really good, in my opinion. I speak not of mine, but of the articles, other articles I've read. I think you'll find it helpful. Well, Hebrews 12... Uh, speaks of uh, the age of Christ's reign between his first and his second comings as a time of great shaking. When everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And in our very times, in our lifetimes, um, we're feeling the shaking. For those of us who are a bit older, we've largely been exempt from it, I think. But now we're feeling the shaking. We're noticing that everything is in flux. Um, and this is not just in Canada. We, we are noting it throughout the world. What is happened is not, no, not just that uh, Christian theological truth is being shaken. That's been happening for about 300 years. You know, theological modernism. Attacks on the holiness, the otherness of God. But now we're attacking it at the level of human personhood. That's relatively new. It's been happening for a while as well. And the two are, of course, implicated. But the specificity is on the human person. And everything that is human now or related to humanness is being redefined. You'll note this. Uh, and I find this fascinating because we allegedly live in an age where, uh, of postmodernism. And the postmoderns, it said, aren't interested in truth. I'm not there yet. They're not interested in truth. 
They don't care about definitions. Well, if they don't care about definitions, then why are they insistent on redefining everything? So the character of postmodernism as having no concern for truth needs to be questioned, at the very least. The, the, the uh, literary theorists and all these uh, idiots in academia, I can say it, I'm one of them, the idiots in academia that say there's no interest in truth, well, we dispute all meta-narratives. Ah, except that the meta-narrative that disputes all meta-narratives. And what meta-narrative do you have in mind but that of the Christian meta-narrative? And you say that you don't have one of your own, but that's just a propaganda exercise to disguise the attempt to wholly recalibrate all of human life, starting with the definition of the human. So I will list marriage is being redefined. Uh, human sexuality is being redefined. Uh, human life is being redefined. When you, so take euthanasia and take abortion, the end and the beginning of life. When you redefine both of those at the, the polar ends of it, then you're redefining life as a whole. Uh, justice is being redefined according to the notion of group rights rather than individual rights. And individual rights, by the way, are the rights of a person. Uh, parenthood is being redefined to include the government as co-parents. This is their own language. Uh, and all of these changes are taking place in accordance with a notion, a specious notion, didn't need to add that, I guess, of what is called human rights. And there are now tribunals which are seeking to enforce these new human rights, this brave new world of human rights. Now, these are at odds with Christian notions of human nature, notions of, Christ of human personhood. Uh, and unfortunately, here in Canada, and I'm afraid I have to disagree with the speaker who was here the other day. I didn't disagree with him in public. I'd be happy to do so. But I don't, the, 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 the unanimous decision, um, not in the WAPCA trial, actually, not in the Whatcott trial, it was. Or was it now? Yeah. It was. Yeah. So unanimous that, uh, we, that we can assert things and we can be prosecuted on them even if they're true, even if our intentions are sincere and we meant no harm, and even if they're based in religious convictions, you can still be prosecuted. I saw no solace in the ruling of the Supreme Court. This was, I'm sorry, this is uh, characteristic of many people and perhaps the legal profession more than others. You're not seeing the wood for the trees here. And above all, and at the root of all this, religious freedom is being redefined as, uh, by an appeal to freedom from religion, not freedom of religion. Now, this new form of freedom is no freedom at all. It's what our forebears would have called licentiousness. Not liberty, but license. It's the public sanctioning of immoral behavior. And what is perhaps surprising to some, it doesn't surprise me, but it does surprise some, is that the public universities are leading the way on this. They're leading the way. Uh, and for the past 200 years, though particularly uh, there's been an intensification since the Second World, Universe, Second World War, universities have steadfastly maintained that the word of God and Christian morality have no relationship to effective teaching or to true knowledge. No relationship whatsoever, and in fact, they're an impediment to it. 
they have maintained that it is possible to be morally and theologically neutral. And Christians have bought into this as a diplomatic gesture. Let's meet on the common ground of neutrality. Let's not talk about Jesus Christ. Let's not talk about the truth of God's word. Let's meet on the neutral ground of natural theology. Or just we'll refer to nature and the, the, the truth that nature tells us that speaks to this. Uh, and Christ, above all, is, is totally irrelevant to education. And I, I have to say that the Christian community has been complicit in this. They have aided and abetted the process. Multiculturalism has ex, uh, exacerbated it, but it has not caused it. Multiculturalism came about as a consequence of this, perhaps. But the process was well underway before this. Uh, the uh, major universities of this country alone departed from the Christian faith long before the policy of multiculturalism. Uh, the U of T and this university were Anglican in their foundations, had strong doctrinal connections to the faith. McMaster was Baptist, Waterloo was Lutheran, uh, Queens was Presbyterian, I could go on and on. All of the older universities they had, they were founded by by Christian denominations and they were rooted in them. They had theological statements, much like my university currently does. And they moved away from them, severed them entirely, in fact. And for the past 20 odd years or so, so has the public school system. As a consequence. Now we all know about that. What next? Well, now the gloves have come off. I think people thought in their naivete that what we were doing was fostering a neutral public space. So we're not imposing our religion on anyone and now they'll, they'll leave us alone. They're going to leave us alone. People actually think this. But it's now clear that the move towards a neutral form of tolerance was not the end game. The end game was to neuter all moral implications of the Christian faith in order to impose a new morality and a new religion. And this appeal for a freedom from religion is increasingly manifesting itself in universities as publicly condoned, publicly funded, legally enforced licentiousness. Uh, a few months ago, Yale University was holding a workshop, a workshop to provide what they euphemistically called sensitivity training towards the practice of bestiality. Sensitivity training. People are being taught to suppress their, or to desensitize their natural revulsion, and they call that sensitivity. It is sensitivity. It's sensitivity to a new form of morality. And it's desensitizing them from what I've called their natural revulsion. I'm not sure I'm right in calling it a natural revulsion. They think it's natural not to be revolted by it. What is then at issue is nature. Uh, Yale's motto, incidentally, is Lux et Veritas, light and truth. That's Harvard? Sorry. Uh, at Brown University's another Ivy League school, it was announced that beginning this fall, I think it was already said actually the other day, in fact it was, Russell mentioned this, uh, sex change surgery at a cost of $50,000 a pop would be provided for free, courtesy of the Brown Student Health Insurance Plan. 
Now, in doing this, uh, Brown joined other famous institutions such as Harvard and Cornell, Stanford, the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, most recently, back in March, many of you know, will know that the U of T held uh, orgies funded by public uh, student fees. And we can see similar developments in our schools. Now, go to this. The first item, which is the posters. Now, can you pull that down, please? Shrink it. Okay. So this is one of them. Love has no gender. What we have here is not just, it has no gender. It also has no number, you'll know. And the poster is actually false advertising. Because it also advertises polyamory. You know, whatever itches we can scratch. Maybe move that. Okay, sorry. My apologies. Okay. Go down a little bit further. These are in the public schools. These are the official TDSB posters. Can you just roll that down? You know, we're here, we're queer, we're in your school. Doesn't matter which fish, what color you are, which direction. Okay, next one. Positive Space 101. Language hurts. Statements such as that so gay are derogatory. Gender is complex. Masculine and feminine are labels, not definitions. Go on down. Uh, go on to the next one. I won't bother with that. We'll just leave this. There are no rules for being a boy or a girl. I'll let the picture speak. That's the first poster. Let's go to the equity reading list, which is the next item. Yeah, that one. Can you just go down to the page two? There. This one's for preschool to grade three. My princess boy. Dyson, which is a vacuum, but I guess it's a boy, loves the color pink. And sparkly things. Sometimes he wears dresses, sometimes he wears jeans. He likes to wear his princess tiara, even when climbing trees. He's a princess boy, and his family loves him exactly the way he is. Inspired by the author's son and by the author's own initial struggles to understand his choices, this is a story about unconditional love and one remarkable family. It's also a call for tolerance and an end to bullying and judgments and a loving reminder that the world is a brighter place when we can accept people for what they are. Oh, who they are. Uh, I won't even bother with the other ones. Next if you can. I'm sorry, did you want the other Well, I'll go with this one. Okay, well, I want, yeah, let's just go with this in your right, because I don't want to spend any more time. This, is, this appeared in the Toronto Star a few weeks ago. The realm between he and she in the past 10 years has seen the rise of a growing transgender community of people who do not identify strictly as male or female. Call me they. She... Uh, Ray Spoon feels neither female, ma female nor male, and prefers to be referred to as by the pronoun they. Now, I, I predicted this years ago, actually. Where's the light here? Is it just over here? Yeah. It's the one that says front floor. Front floor. That's fine. I don't think we need to look at they. Um, my purpose here is not to. Uh, pick on a particular person, a particular group, and so forth. It's to demonstrate uh, that uh, what I'm saying is not uh, fear-mongering, and it's not talking about things in isolation. This is becoming the... That's, that was the page one of the Toronto Star. 
Uh, and as we know, not just in educational establishment and newspapers, there's a, there's a push. It's not just informing, it's transforming. There's an agenda there. Yes? It's interesting how they use the pronoun they, because they want, like, that community wants to be integrated into society, but they're trying to promote exclusivity. So it's like, or, like, oh, it's, when you say, oh, just them. They don't want to be included. Okay, so this is the point. The end game is not inclusion. The end game is you must assimilate. It's like the Borg. The call for tolerance is that is just the victim card. What they want is public legitimation. And the reason they want public legitimation is because there's a new standard of righteousness. And that the reason that there's a new standard of righteousness is people are aware of their guilt and their sin. Now Romans 1 talks about this. And they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. But that doesn't mean that they have no standard of righteousness. It's, the, it's a self-righteousness. And now, note that it's been, it's been attached to a sexual activity. They'll talk about sexual orientation, they'll talk about gender, and so on and so forth. Now, this will have a, a knock-on effect in other areas. Uh, and I witnessed this, and I quote here. Uh, there's a growing conviction, notably in Canada. This was an American paper, but that pedophilia should probably be classified as a distinct sexual orientation, like heterosexuality or homosexuality. Two eminent researchers testified to that effect to a Canadian parliamentary commission two years ago. And the Harvard Mental Health Letter of July 2010 stated baldly that pedophilia is, and I quote, a sexual orientation and therefore unlikely to change. It's coming. No, no, no. It is a sexual orientation and therefore unlikely to change. It's not a mental health problem. It is. Yes, it was a mental health letter. So the the reason that it will need to be uh, included is again because to suppress it is to cause mental health problems. I say jaws dropping, and that's a that's a healthy response. It's impossible not to conclude from this that we are experiencing here God's judgment on our country, not just our country, but on the entire world that is adopting this agenda. And it's a direct, a direct consequence, not of the world, but of the generational faithlessness of the church. And in particular, it's pastors and teachers who have not wanted to speak out on this. Where are the pastors in this? Have you heard your pastor speak on these things in your church? Why not? By refusing to embrace Christian education, by sending the kids to the public schools, uh, by truncating the gospel to personal salvation, faith in Jesus Christ, that's it. It's all about a personal relationship. They all say that. But personal relationship include personal relationship to human persons. The correlate of this. You can't affirm the one and deny the other without denying the first. Does he not say any say something about personal relationships, as in relationship between human persons? Yes, he does. Um, by electing parties irrespective of their anti-Christian platforms and their conduct, 
and in general, by by and large, staying on the sidelines while the whole educational and legal establishment has veered in an explicitly anti-Christian direction, Christian leaders have allowed their flocks to be led into the wilderness in the belief that it would be a neutral place where civil society could actually flourish without Jesus Christ, the Lord and author of life. When you depart from the Lord and author of life, the consequence is death. And evangelism has been reduced to picking a few brands from the fire. Like me, I was one of those brands. So I don't dispute the significance of that sort of evangelism, but boy, is there a lot more than that. Now, how foolish the separation or the truncation of the Christian gospel to that is becoming plain to see. It's like being allowing yourself to be neutered by a death cult so that we can all meet on a common ground. Let's all be neutered so then we can all feel affirmed. You got a philosophy of death? That's okay. We'll meet you there. So we can continue to call Jesus Christ our personal savior, but avoid being fruitful, multiplying, or exercising dominion over the earth under God's word. Now you've heard a lot about this this week. Now I find this alarming myself. I find it uh, distressing as a father. I find it um, presses my heart when I see young people who have grown up in this and have never known anything different. And this is the world we're in. Um, so I am moved by that. On the other hand, you, we are giving you fire to fight fire. It begins with understanding the problem. And by speaking to what is a Christian, and what is the Christian view of this? We're not just saying, here's the problem. We're saying, here's the solution. I'll come to this afterwards. I, I have a time issue here. Now let me speak to this. Where, where does this come, all come from? This comes from, let me cite one scholar because he's the most important. There are others, of course. But it's uh, connected to the scholar Michel Foucault, uh, the most cited scholar in the humanities today, I believe. And he is the key figure in the transformation. Now, Foucault, whom you've all heard of, or if you haven't heard of him, you've seen the consequences of Foucault, was a gay scholar, first French public figure to die of AIDS, by the way, uh, who engaged in cultural studies in a way that rejected uh, the traditional historiographical and sociological analysis. He engaged in scholarship really as almost a form of guerrilla warfare, I would say. His aim was not to understand the past, to recover the past, to interpret the past. His aim was to assume that what had been taught in the past was malignant and he sought to disrupt it. In other words, he made the scholarly endeavor to be one of social activism. He brought social activism out of the sphere of society and into academia. And now, most of academia is socially activist because of Foucault. Because Foucault questioned the basic comprehensibility of the past, why did he do that? Because he assumed the logic of the view of language which I articulated yesterday that we, can only we only understand reality of words relating to other words. We don't act, they don't actually relate to life. And they're the representation of a power group with an agenda. So Foucault, with that view of language, 
with that view of how language relates to the world around us, with his view that uh, religious expositions are really just hate speech, with all of these views, rather than trying to understand the past, his aim was to bring in a new paradigm. Because, I mean, Foucault was logical on this. If the view of the past was just arbitrary, because all views of reality are arbitrary, there is no no connection between sign uh, and signifier. They're just purely self-referential. Let's not treat the past as if it were foundational. Let's treat it as if it were different than now, and we need to progress beyond it. So it should in no way shape the present, and his logic is this, if all reality is simply a social construct, then why should the social constructs of the past prevail upon the present? The logic's good. And you're going to have to answer that question, because that is one that's thrown at you as a Christian. Why should a morality of the past, a view of the past, prevail upon the present? Why should it be heard at all? And then Christian history will be thrown in your face. Didn't the Christians persecute? And it usually comes up when you, when you critique Islam, the atrocities that the Christians allegedly committed and so forth. Um, so for, for Foucault, the Christian mindset of the past was the preeminent source of injustice. And his project sought to emancipate the present from the past in the most radical way by uprooting all of the accumulated cultural and religious understandings that had come to form Western consciousness from our language. It wasn't just that he wanted to change the social world, he wanted to change the words that we used. Political correctness set in in the 80s when Foucault was on the rise. And now it's entrenched. It's everywhere. And the reason why he wanted to do this, he wouldn't have articulated it as such, is he wanted to separate the words, lowercase w, from the word, capital W, of persons from the person. And so he wanted to create, rather than a personal world, an organic, autonomous world of freedom. And the foundational understandings of human identity were his foremost concern because rooted in our understanding of human nature were attenuated all our notions of subjects, such as truth, beauty, goodness, justice, and morality. All these were tied in with our understanding of, of the human and human social institutions. We've seen that God's word speaks to all of these things. They're implicates of his person. God's word reveals God's character. Bearing his image, we are to bear his character. Here's how we do it in these areas. Foucault says, that's got to go. And for that reason, the policies of political correctness, which began in the 1980s, and the human rights tribunals, which soon transformed to operate according to their dictates, are inseparable from Foucault's project. So political correctness shouldn't be understood as a form of politeness. You know, you've offended me. That's not what it's about. That's just victim. That's the victim card. It's not about offending people. It's a root and branch reconstruction of the developed cultural assumptions of civil society. And in particular, it seeks to reverse what Christianity has done to reforge human identity in accordance with the terms of Christ's kingdom. We talked about the Great Commission, the going out of the world, discipling the nations. 
it's now producing a different kingdom. There are 2,000 years of history here in the church by evangelicals attacks on Christendom all the time. I'm a Jesus follower. I'm not a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. You can't do this without attacking the kingship of Christ. You can't have a king without a kingdom. To have a king without a kingdom is to say nothing. You're a king. What does that mean? Well, it's some sort of a spiritual reality. Do you live in a spiritual reality? Did Christ come into a spiritual reality? I thought he was incarnate. I thought he took on human flesh. He ate. He wept. He died physically. He spoke of the kingdom of God. Was it a spiritual kingdom or was he talking about something? According to many people, it was. You've heard on how the kingdom of God was, was brought in and understood by Christians from the very beginnings. Now, Christians are, are buying into the idea that it's just a spiritual reality, or they're saying, you know, with a, a view of the end times, that God's going to bring things to an end very soon. And they're praying for it. I can understand why when I look at the world around them. But are they being obedient in doing so? The Great Commission entails obedience to everything that God has taught. That's what being a part of his kingdom means. Okay, so let me look at this concept of freedom. It's becoming increasingly clear in our day that obedience to the legislation of this new kingdom, complete with new laws and a new language, is the invariable consequence of Foucault's esoteric scholarly endeavors but he didn't call it I'm bringing in a new law he never said this he didn't say that he was bringing in a new form of language he didn't say that uh, he was bringing in a new kingdom this was never announced what he wanted was freedom that's all he wants is autonomy freedom not to have other people's views imposed upon him Freedom is the word. It's the banner. And in a 1983 interview, Foucault made it clear that he endorsed uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's radical views on self-creation. And others who had been in the gay movement before him, I think he thought were in error on this front because they introduced the idea of authenticity. I just want to be myself. I want to be who I am. You know, in coming out, I want to be just who I am as Lady Gaga sings it. Yeah? That's what I really want. They want to be faithful to who they truly are. Foucault criticizes this perspective. He says that it has, there's nothing within us or outside of us to which we are true. Self-creation has no such limits. It's real, total freedom. It's, it's about aesthetics. It's not about morality. Our only concern is to create a work of art and that can go in any direction. So it's not just a gay agenda. It's not just so gay men can be gay men. It's so that there can, we can be emancipated from all distinctiveness and therefore gender. Which is infinitely plastic. And for that reason, the, the idea of coming out is always a part of the parliament, parlance of queer writers. It's the celebration of a new act of creation by the artist. Note that that uh, people of um, who are under this illusion tend to be artistic. 
they suddenly take on an artistic flair. They act a little different, a little more artiste. And this is because they, are, they see themselves as artists. They're, they're, they're a little bit less rigid than the rest of us. And they celebrate this as a new birth. It's a new creation to which they, of which they are gods. They've, they've created a new thing, and it's them. And they need to be celebrated. And the rest of us also need to celebrate. It's called a pride parade. And the schools are being encouraged to go out and become activists in it. To celebrate. Now, why is this demand for public acceptance so strong? The rest of us are saying, look, you can do what you want, but don't coerce me into going along with it. They're not going to let us alone on that. They can't. Because it's, a not, it's not about freedom. It's not about letting them be as they are. It's about a standard of righteousness which we must conform to. If you look at the TDSB documents, you will see this very clearly. By the way, the TDSB schools, if you're a parent with a child in this, the curriculum that's being taught in that, you cannot take your child out of it. You can't take your child out of it. Because to do so is a, an act of hatred. It's to foster a poisonous environment, and it is against human rights, that's their own words, to do so. So parents have no authority over the child. Religious freedom, we, yes, we acknowledge that, but not in this case. Look at the TDSB's own website. Now, the TDSB's website is just a product of Kathleen Wynne's own Ontario curriculum. Which, she, which Dalton McGinty pulled off the table, and when she was elected premier, or rather not elected premier, was made premier by her party, she said, that's coming back. First thing, it's coming back. It's going to be everywhere. So coming out sounds like it's a, a, an individual experience. It's an expression of personal freedom, and in one sense it is. But because gender is at odds with biological sex and the family, it is a celebration that queer theorists, and that now includes everyone, they insist that everyone must celebrate. As Peter Sandlin notes, uh, queer theorists seek a freedom from the limitations of, and I'm replacing his word because he's incorrect on this, replacing, uh, so from the limitations of sex itself. Only when humanity understands itself as construed not by biological realities, but by malleable sociological relations will homosexuality be able to be enjoyed without heterosexual oppression. The assumptions latent in a presupposed biological bias towards heterosexuality must be queered sufficiently that they may be discarded. So we must get rid of heteronormativity. By the way, in queer theory, they think that the primordial, the original, and this goes back all the way to Freud, the sexual inclination of every man is towards other men first. It needs to be sociologically oriented towards women. That was Freud's view. So for this freedom, they call it freedom, for this freedom to be truly free, queer theorists require that everyone worship it rather than conforming to their own natural sexual na nature. There is no natural sexual nature. There's only a constructed one. 
because nature itself is an, is a, a, an oppression. And we can see that now it's not only going to he, she, it's also they. Even the notion of an individual person is an oppression. So there is a compulsory ambiguity and there is a return to pagan androgyny. Because those who promote Foucault's agenda uh, deny that the world is God's creation. How much time do I don't need 10 minutes. Good. Um, they deny that the world is God's creation. They also deny that there is a predestined meaning or a foreordained pattern in the universe or in human nature. And so long as this is just a, a fringe view, the absurdity of the view, can, you can just ignore it. You know, this is this Fruit Loop stuff. But once academia adopts it and it starts to become accepted, then what is plastic and impotent and irrational and silly takes on the structure of all of the institutions that give it the weight of credibility. So once the educational establishment starts teaching it as if it were truth, even though they deny the very existence of truth other than their truth, which is incoherent, and once the legal establishment starts bringing in laws to do this, and it's being taught in hospitals as well as educational establishments, it's everywhere. Once that starts happening, is it, it starts to take on a, uh, a power to it. It's like the cuckoo that's inhabited the bird's nest, and it retains the nest. When you appeal constantly to victimization, and the, the system is there to prevent the victim or to uh, you know protect the victim, to um, treat the victim, there's a practical consequence, and the practical consequence is this. Let me make the comparison. In a Christian worldview, we've been talking about justice. Because there's an understanding that the final judgment belongs to God, justice is mine. I will avenge, says the Lord. Ultimately, even we seek to do justice, we're called upon to do justice. Ultimately, uh, injustice can still happen. For one thing, people aren't even brought to justice. But God will one day do justice. And everything that has happened will one day be judged. But because Christians believe that, um, there isn't an immediate reckoning of all injustice. There's no necessity for this to happen. We don't have to do the justice. I mean, we're called upon to do the justice, to make the world on earth as it is in heaven. But we know that one day, everything will be set right. And so we, there's a freedom that is allowed there. We don't have to do everything. But here, because they deny God, the limitations of the lex talionis, the foundation for Christian, uh, uh, for Western freedom, the understanding of God's final judgment, those all go. And as uh, Albert Camus observed in the anti-Christian universe, the judgment pronounced by history must be pronounced immediately. For culpability coincides with the check to progress and with punishment. So we must prosecute everything and we must rectify it. There must be justice done right now. We must fix everything. It has a coercive character in the name of freedom, of liberation. It has a coercive character which everyone feels. Everyone feels the coercion in the name of 
we're helping the victim. We're bringing about, we're freeing them from oppression. And yet everyone's being oppressed. And that's because they, their view of judgment is only in this life. It has to happen now. So this explains both the oppressive character and the speed of the development. So guilt in a socially constructed universe is rooted not to committing an offense. It's, it's, it's connected to failing to promote social justice. You have to promote social justice. Everyone has to promote social justice. There is no freedom here for not promoting social justice. If you don't promote social justice, you're complicit in the structural oppression which is there in the system. And nowhere is this more evident in the so-called web of oppression. I don't know if you've got this thing in front of me. I put it up there uh, yesterday in my previous talk. But this whole web of oppression which is taught, you are called upon to subvert. If, particularly if you're one of the people in the middle of this. You have access to uh, privilege, power, access, and resources if you're white, male, wealthy, a native-speaking, English, able-bodied, Protestant, heterosexual. If you don't seek to put people who aren't in that position in the center, then you are guilty. You don't even have to do anything. So you don't actually have to oppress anyone by not bringing about social justice, by not being an activist, you are complicit in guilt. So you are accused uh, because it's almost like a cat. It's a new caste system. We are the guilty, the Christians in particular. We, are, in other words, are the scapegoat for the new morality. We won't be the only scapegoats, but we're the first ones. I said last time what's fascinating about this web of oppression is that the outside of it is there are, there are Muslims alongside the uh, others, which I, is incredibly ironic given uh, the way that Islam oppresses other people on the outside of the, the web there, but be that as it may. Now this web of oppression that I, I put before you last time, it's presented to undergraduates throughout many universities and it is, it is at the center of social just, the social justice movement, which is there in most evangelical churches. And if you're not on board with that, then you're not really serving God. You haven't really understood the gospel. You don't understand the kingdom of God. You're not a red-letter Christian. You've never really been caught on fire. I see this at my university all the time. And I see even worse, I see people in administration buy into it because they want people to come to the university. They are trendy, they want their money. So the finance guys want us to move in that direction because it's bums on seats. The leaders want it to happen because they're clueless. This is being taped, right? Good. <laughs> and the irony here is that in the, in the name of defending the rights of the oppressed, the most vulnerable minority of all, the individual, and his rights are being progressively annihilated. And this is no small thing. The integrity of every human being and his immunity from the absolute and coercive power of the state lies at the heart of all true human rights legislation. 
from the movement to abolish slavery uh, to the movement to acknowledge the full equality of women before the law and the political system, that's there at the heart of all true human justice. But But group rights preys upon individual rights. Because it doesn't matter what, what you as an individual do, you have to buy into the group rights. So group, group rights destroys human rights. Group rights are the postulate of organisms as an organic view of life. Once you get rid of person, you get rid of individual. An organism is just organic. At that point, persons are expendable. And the reason they're expendable is because justice is being done. In other words, it's a totalitarian view which is coming in our midst right now. It is not something that can be ignored. It is something that can be recognized and it is something that can be fought. And the way it is fought is by exert, by asserting Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Think about this. Um, did Jesus not bring about the kingdom of God? Did he not defeat sin and death? Has the church not been oppressed at every turn throughout human history? Did it not once face paganism? Did people not once go to the lions? Were they not put to the sword? And did the kingdom of God not advance in spite of this by faithful people? Yes, that's because God's uh, kingdom cannot be stopped. It can't be stopped. It can be extinguished where we are because we're faithless. That can happen. But his kingdom is advancing. It's happening all over the world, actually. Not in uh, advanced, enlightened North America and enlightened Europe. There it's going down. It's going the way of the dodo. But it doesn't need to do that. If faithful people will adhere and obey God, God honors those who honor him. So I give that to you at the conclusion of this, lest it sound so hopeless. Because it's not hopeless. God is our strength and our shield. Question? Comment? And this is sort of referencing your binary chart of yesterday. I'm just trying to understand because it seems like we would advocate for the collapse of certain binaries, such as white over black. Yep. As maintaining that binary as unchristian. So that it would be unchristian for whites to assert supremacy over black. Right. we would technically advocate to maintain certain binaries, such as straight over gay and good over evil, and same with language, that we would probably join the fight for removal of certain like racial slurs yep. as Christian. Yes. Whereas we would defend or protect ourselves against the change of vocabulary of a gay rights group. Yep. Like I, it's, it's confusing. So the binary oppositions, the, the chart that I set up, that's one that they would use. It's not one that I endorsed as as correct. But and there are the, some of these things are not like the others. So um, being a white or a black has no moral implication whatsoever. And in fact, the Bible only uh, understands one race, and that's the human race. And black and white belong to that. So the idea of racial slavery, which is in the 18th century, and it was racial, um, that is utterly abhorrent. Uh, but it was fought on the level not of the group, the blacks, it was fought on. That's a person. They happen to have black skin, but that is a person that you are doing that to. That is not allowed by God's law. That's not allowed. That person bears God's image. And uh, this is what you are doing is called man-stealing. 
This is also forbidden under law and death penalty for this. Um, whereas you would, whereas, whereas you would say a homosexual, I don't even acknowledge the category of the homosexual, by the way. You're giving an ontology to an act. So I'm not a heterosexual, even. Maybe that should even be gone. It could be misunderstood, but... <laughs> but they, that, but they, you got that at the end of that, right? You can edit that bit out. But the, but the categorized suggests is that there is anything other than that. There is no thing other than that. And so part of the problem is that creation of that list to begin with and suggesting that white and black should be put in. And that fits in with their whole theory of language, that that's how language works. So once they set it up, then they can set up, these are binary opposites, and then they can say which one of them is the, is the dominant and which one suffers historically, and we need to write everything that was on top now needs to be down below, and everything that was below, which is a victim, needs to be brought up. And note, it's a group, not individuals, not persons. Yeah. Okay, I think that's a common strategy to go just as we fought for the end of slavery. You got it. Fight for the end of slavery. They use the royal we there, of course. It, they tend not to be Christians, and it was Christians who fought for it in each case, in every case. And unfortunately now it's Christians who are deluded, who are fighting for gay marriage and such things, although it is an abomination. Yeah. We talked about this a bit at our table last night. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, you wouldn't know that, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, just wondering if you can just enlighten me on how um, to defend the Christian worldview in that, because I know... I can't. <laughs> the, uh, what happened in the residential schools were that, were that children were taken away from their parents and put into Christian schools to make Christians out of them. Um, this denies the, the authority of the lawful authority of the family. This is what in, in the ancient world one did to a people that one wanted to destroy. When you'd go into a hostile country, you would take away their children, they would have no future. It, it, can't also, it also can't be rectified, I don't think. There's no way of rectifying, but it's an atrocity. It's a, and it's a mistaken understanding of evangelism. And it is, atroc it is an atrocity. It can't be rectified through guilt payments, however. It can't. Um, how to treat it is that I, I haven't thought enough about this to give you an answer. I don't think there is a simple answer to this, but I think it's appalling. I am native, by the way, in my, in my I've got the, a status card. You wouldn't know it by looking at me. My mother was adopted. Um, she didn't even know it until her parents died. She found it in documents that she was. Um, but there are a lot of people that have experienced that. People taken away from their families, the shame, and there would have been a white man who probably raped a native woman, and the product was my mom. There are a lot of people around this country that, so that yes, there was racism, and racism is, was endemic in this country. Racism is attached to Darwinism, quite frankly. And we've talked about Darwinism. Darwinism at root sees there's a social Darwinism that comes as a product of that, and you can see that throughout the Western world in the 20th century, in the 19th century. 
And yet they claim now that we can hold to a Darwinist view of life and somehow good will come out of it this time. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.